Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. For tonight's event, we have sci-fi author Paolo Bacigalupi here to present his newest release, the paperback edition of The Water Knife. Mr. Bacigalupi has received astounding praise from fans and critics alike for many of his works, including a Hugo and Nebula Award for his debut, The Wind-Up Girl, and a Michael L. Prince Award for The Shipbreaker. We're very excited to have the author here at the Tattered Cover again, so if everyone could help me in introducing Paolo Bacigalupi. Thanks, everyone. Really appreciate you coming out. It's always sort of a, 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 a potluck sort of moment when you, when you show up at a bookstore and you find out whether or not anybody else is going to show up or not. And, and uh, it's sort of like this weird referendum on whether or not you matter as a human being or not. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> it can be a little dark sometimes. I was on tour for, uh, I think it was the Drowned Cities, and I went to a bookstore, and there was, there was, there was one person in the audience. We had a very nice chat. Um, but it changes the format a little bit. <laughs> um, uh, I always get really, really nervous uh, standing out and talking to people, um, so I hope you'll bear with me on that. Um, and, in fact, okay, good. I do have, actually, my book here. Um, this is my book. I wrote a book. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> my blood and sweat. No. Um, uh, so it's a little bit uh, strange for me to be back here. Uh, the last time I was here was for the hardback of Waterknife, and we did a, a Colorado Public Radio event, um, and so there was a very structured format for that. Um, uh, and so I, I sort of, it's it's this is the first time I've ever actually done a, a paperback book tour. And when my publisher was like, they told me that they wanted me to come out and do promotion for the paperback, it was like, oh well, what do you want me to talk about? I thought I sort of covered everything when I did the did the hardback. So um, we're going to try to change things up a little bit anyway. Um, but one of the things I kind of wanted to talk about was how. Uh, how things have sort of changed uh, from when I was writing The Water Knife and when it came out till now. Um, it, was, it was sort of an interesting process of writing The Water Knife initially because the uh, sort of initial intention to write the book started in 2011 with uh, major droughts that were uh, happening in Texas at the time. Uh, I was working on the book through 2012 when the major droughts were happening here in Colorado. Um, and at each stage, you know, you're working on this thing and thinking, Oh, like by the time this book comes out, everybody's going to be writing about drought. These books about drought are going to be everywhere. And yeah, anyway, you sort of feel like events are overtaking you almost as you write them. Um, when the, as it, as it happened, um, <laughs> when the book actually did come out, uh, California was in a massive drought. And, uh, and so it was as if the, the, the marketing people at Knopf had conspired to control the weather on my behalf, um, because suddenly I was very, very like socially relevant for a moment. Um, uh, but the other thing that was happening is sort of that you could, you could see that the drought that had started the whole idea, which was the 2011 drought down in Texas, was gone. And in fact, they, during that same year, they were having floods. Um, and, uh, and so you sort of saw that, that weird signaling of weather versus the conversation about climate, which is actually the one you, you genuinely want to be having. Um, 
And, uh, and in, the, in the case of weather, there was this anticipation in California that El Nino was coming, and people were like, oh, well, maybe this will save us. Maybe this will pull us out of our terrible drought. Um, as it happens, the Sierra snowpack last year when they were in the drought was about 5%. This year, Sierra snowpack is about 80-something percent, um, which is better, um, but is not enough, actually, to drag them out of a drought. So I still feel relevant. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, I guess the other thing is, is you, you sort of are looking at all of those signals about about the weather, about the climate, and, and sort of looking around at the larger world. I was just down in Australia um, burning a ton of carbon to go there, um, helping put another stake in the heart of the planet. And, um, and, uh, and Australia has been in a massive drought for, for more than a decade now. Um, and so I was in Perth, and it was really interesting to be there because – in Perth, they've um, they have they had reservoirs too on ris- rivers, and uh, now their reservoirs are simply empty. Um, and that was really interesting to talk to people where they were like, "Yeah, we basically consider that to be dead infrastructure. Um, it's not relevant to us anymore. Those dams will never be; those reservoirs will never be f- refilled. Those dams are useless." It's just not happening anymore. And that was really interesting to think about in the context of the West, where we still expect that our reservoirs do refill um, every year, even if they're lower than we'd like. We still think of our rivers as flowing, at least. Um, And in the case of Perth, they're lucky enough to be right next to the ocean, and so they've moved entirely to desalinization plants for their their water supplies. Um, And so you see that shift where people are adapting to something that just doesn't let up. And, And that's very interesting to me, you know, writing a story like The Water Knife, which is about a drought that won't let up. Um, but the other um, thing that just actually was happening recently, um, which was fascinating to me, is that right now in Arizona, like this whole story is basically a story of two cities. One of them is Las Vegas, which has looked around at the future and looked at the data that's coming at them and says, wow, climate change is a, looks like a bear. We already have a terrible sort of water rights situation. We already are in a precarious spot. We're already a stupid city in the middle of a stupid desert. So um, how do we survive? And so Las Vegas starts making plans to make sure that they have their water. And and meanwhile, um, in this story, Phoenix has decided to sort of whistle past the graveyard and hope that nobody will notice that they haven't made any plans or anything. And as a result, Phoenix is sort of falling apart and is, is becoming more and more devastated. Um, and I'm going to read a small section from Phoenix in a second. But um, but um, one of the things that's really interesting is just recently, there's a, a major developer who wants to develop more housing down in the Arizona area, down the Phoenix area. And um, and they've been hamstrung by this law that Arizona has on the books, which requires new developments to prove a 100-year supply of water. And, um, and, and this is totally hamstrung this developer. And, and what it is, what it's a lot of what that law does is it prevents groundwater pumping and over pumping. It's sort of like the idea that you can't mine your way, uh, to a sustainable future with water. And so Arizona says you have to prove that you have a hundred years worth of water for any new development. Um, and this is too much of a, a constriction for this developer. And so they've managed to push a bill through, uh, the legislature, which is now sitting on the governor's desk. Last I heard it was sitting on the governor's desk waiting to be signed, which would undo that tradition of water planning entirely, um, and would allow them to get, get past the whole question of whether or not they need to prove a water supply. Cause why would we have to prove that there's going to be water in the future? And now I'm going to read a section from Phoenix <laughs> because it's so awesome to see people making a bad future for you. Um, 
there's this weird thing where like every time people ask me like why I can't write more optimistic stories and, and then it's stuff like this. I'm like, because we're so determinedly stupid. We, we want to make money right now and damn the future. And, and that's fascinating to me. So, um, anyway, I'm going to read this section if I can find it. Um, Okay, um, so this is a section where Angel uh, Angel Velasquez has, is driving towards uh, driving into Phoenix, and Angel is a is a water knife. He's sort of like a 007 of water. Um, he blows up other people's water treatment plants. He gives people offers on their water rights they can't refuse. He does whatever it takes to make sure that Vegas has water, um, and he's been sent sent to Phoenix. Uh, on the hunt for some water rights that might be changing the face of of how water and and all the legal systems around water are managed on the Colorado River and in the West. So, but he's driving into Phoenix at this point. Campfires blazed in the darkness outside Angel's car windows. Phoenix's first telltales, refugees and recycling operations dotting the city's dark zone, the city consuming itself, whittling away the fat of more prosperous times. Ahead, taillight glows of thickening traffic, cheap electric scooters weaving between the black shapes of flex fuel pickups and Tesla machete SUVs, shadow shapes in the boiling dust of the interstate. Ghost images, a woman clutching the back of a scooter, whipped by a wind, her arms around her man's waist, her eyes and mouth pursed tight against the dust. Another scooter hauling a five-gallon water cube strapped down by bungee cords. The driver hunched over his handlebars, a bright blue sparkle pony filter mask hiding his features. More traffic. More life. Heads and faces shrouded by scarves and masks against the dust. Headlight beams. Tunnels of light in the haze. People all along the roadside shoveling out from another storm, sweeping off cars. Shadow ants working furiously. The pavement turned bumpy. Angel slowed, easing the low-slung car over washboard. Dustfall layers, one upon the next upon the next. Inside the Tesla, cool AC pumped in a steady hiss through HEPA filters. Angel felt cocooned from the outside world. Blue and red glows of the instruments, soft chatter on the radio. KFYI, Colin. You know what this is really like? Pompeii. By the time it's over, we're going to be covered in dust 50 feet thick. Right. Next caller. Angel's headlights illuminated a, figure, illuminated a figure standing between the highway margins, head encased in goggles and filter mask, eyes flashing like an insect's as high beams swept over, a mute monster, inexplicable, then lost in darkness. I say we send our troops up to Colorado. I mean, that's our water they're holding. We should go up there and open the dams and get our damn water down here. The dark zone ended. One minute, Phoenix was dead and black. The next, the city was alive and blazing with neon and activity, as if someone had gone around the edges of the city, burning and blackening its rim with blowtorches, leaving nothing but the neon smoldering core, a living city thrusting upward from the ashes of the suburbs. If we weren't wasting so much water on farming, we'd be all be fine. Cut the rest of the farms off. I don't care how the senior their rights are. They're the ones wasting it. About what that last idiot said? If you cut off farms, you've got dust storms. Simple as that. Where the hell does he think this dust is coming from anyway? Zoners pointing fingers at one another. None of them pointing it back at themselves. Catherine Case said that was how you could tell someone was from Arizona. They never owned their problems. She liked that about them. It made them easy to gut. 
So yeah, it's, it's always sort of a pleasure when like somebody, you know, starts setting up some sort of system where they say, Oh, well, we aren't going to actually plan for water in the future. We're just going to build and build and build and then see what happens. And you're like, wow, you guys are actually trying to make my terrible future real. Like I'm impressed. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that's, that's something that sort of like is standing out and you sort of are watching as, as we make different decisions and make different plans. Um, one of the things that's also sort of stood out over the last year has, um, has been, uh, stuff that's been changing in international politics. Um, and I've been fascinated by, uh, the Middle East, um, a lot of times you sort of hear this cliched concept of water wars, um, that in the future we're going to have water wars. Um, and, and the truth is that we've never actually had a declared official war over water, um, much like we've never had a declared official war over oil. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, but what we do have is a lot of sort of low-intensity conflicts and problems that are exacerbated by scarcity. And, and one of the things that's really interesting to me about climate change is how it acts as a stressor on already stressed systems. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, one of the, the, the theories about sort of why Syria finally sort of exploded after years of managing to maintain, you know, a sort of draconian control uh, was that uh, they were, they had a climate sort of likely climate affected drought that went on and on and on. It dried up their farms, which caused food scarcity, which caused food, food prices to rise. Um, but it also displaced all these farmers that ended up flooding into the cities. And that means that the cities were stressed. And that meant that there was a space for uh, political unrest to sort of foment more strongly. Um, and so then that explodes into a civil war, which then explodes into things like ISIS sort of taking territory. Um, and then fascinatingly, um, uh, you know, it gets so bad that suddenly refugees start spilling out of that area and they start flooding into other areas. And so you see Europe now pressed and you see this domino effect of, you know, something we can say, oh, here's this stressor over here. And we want to say, oh, that's over in that zone. Um, and a lot of times when we talk about climate change, what's interesting to me is, is we talk about um, wealthy Western nations as being largely immune to climate change, that, well, we'll weather the storm because we're wealthy and we're technologically advanced. And so we have a lot of um, adaptability. Um, we're resilient. We like to think of ourselves as resilient societies. Um, but the interesting thing is, is now suddenly you have this, this problem that started over in the Middle East. And, and the subtext of that oftentimes is essentially like, oh, so if Bangladesh drowns, alas, you know, too bad for Bangladesh. Like, it just you, they shouldn't have built a nation right at low sea level. Like, what were they thinking? Um, and Sorry. Um, and and so but what you see though is with this with with something like uh you know the 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 Syrian civil war you see this interesting moment where people are are so miserable that they cannot stay where they are it, it is untenable and they start moving um and that's what we all would do if we were in a terrible situation is we would not sit there and die obediently we would go somewhere better um and so you see this flood of people pushing into Europe and then what you see is a change in the rhetoric that Europe has too the change in the rhetoric about immigration, but also a change in rhetoric in terms of like being more reactionary, um, more highly defensive. You see a rise in right-wing sort of sentiments, things like that. And you start seeing other political schisms starting up in Europe and in the United States as well. There's a certain kind of language that, that becomes more exacerbated when a country perceives itself to be under stress. Um, and so I'm sort of interested 
interested in that idea that like maybe we're all a lot more connected to the fall of dominoes than we'd like to think because this is just one small conflict and one small zone of disrupted agriculture pressing and pressing on other systems that were already pressed and then we don't know how many dominoes can fall um, and that's sort of interesting to me. So the next section I'm going to read from is from the perspective of Lucy and Lucy Monroe is a journalist and she is investigating the death of uh, a friend of hers who worked in the Phoenix Water Department uh, as a water lawyer. And her friend had been on to, quote, a big score. And, and then he ended up killed. And so she is going to find him in the morgue. Um, but when she shows up, uh, a whole lot of other stuff is also happening at the morgue in Phoenix. And so this is uh, Lucy uh, walking into the morgue. Lucy forged through the morgue's jumbled crowds, shouting EMTs and Phoenix PD, FBI and state troopers, hysterical victims' families, morgue techs, and medical examiners. It looked like the city of Phoenix had called up its entire overtime roster to process the corpses lining the hallways. Bodies were stacked on gurneys and dumped outside the morgue proper. Everywhere she looked, there were more bodies. Flashbulbs strobed in the corridors, journos working the blood rags, capturing chaos. A new rush of bodies poured in, wheeled on stretchers, shoving Lucy aside. She flung out an arm against the wall, bridging a desiccated corpse that was barely covered by a sheet. The stink of rotten meat boiled up, mingling with the sweat and reek of the emergency workers. Lucy fought an urge to gag. Lucy! The shout echoed above the general din. Timo, skinny and grinning, waved to her as he clawed through the crowds, clutching his camera. A familiar face. A friendly face. Timo had been one of the first locals to take her under his wing when she'd come to Phoenix. Ray Torres had introduced them when Lucy asked about how the blood rags did their business, and she and Timo had formed a wary working relationship that eventually strengthened into something more. Now, when Lucy had a story assignment and needed stunningly executed art, she got Timo on the project. When she had exclusive art that needed words and access to big-name magazines and news feeds, he called her. Symbiosis. Friendship a bit of bedrock in the shifting sands of Phoenix's many disasters. Timo plunged between the sobbing victims' families and grabbed Lucy's arm, dragging her deeper into the chaos. Didn't know you'd be covering this. Last time we talked, you said you were done chasing bodies. What the hell is going on? She shouted back. You don't know? They found half of Texas buried out there in the desert. Bodies just keep coming in. So I guess I should pause here and say that Texans are refugees who've been trying to move out of Texas after it's been devastated by drought. And so and they've been trying to cross borders and there have been a whole bunch of state border control laws that have appeared. Um, and so uh, these are the Texans. Um, they found half a Texas buried out there in the desert. Bodies just keep coming in. The photographer showed her his camera, shoving aside his amulet for La Santa Muerte when it blocked the screen, thumbing through shots as people jostled around them. Take a look at these babies! Photos of corpses being excavated, body after body after body. Coyotes were just taking people's money and just burying them out there in the desert, Timo said. Nobody knows how many they're going to find. Lucy glanced around at the chaos, shocked. I had no idea it was this big. I saw something on the news. I know, right? And I thought it was good when I first got tipped. This sucker's going viral. <laughs> Timo gloated. Half the world sending journals in to cover this, and I got all the best picks. Paid for exclusives out of the dig. Cops aren't letting anyone else except for me. La Santa Muerte is paying off big for me this year. He kissed his amulet. Skinny lady's taking care of her own. 
He jostled Lucy. So? You want in? I got the art. <laughs> it looks like you do. I'm serious, lady. My phone's off the hook. I'm super sexy to all the biggies right now, but I'll give you first crack. I'm not handing these over to some wet asshole who just jumped off a plane. Locals get first pick. Thanks. I'll let you know. What's up? Is there something else you need here? Don't worry about it. It's personal. Okay. Timo looked doubtful. But call me about the art. We got things no one else is going to have for weeks. He raised his voice as more EMTs came shoving through, pushing more bodies on gurneys, pressing them apart. We can blow this up. Don't worry. I'll call you. Don't wait. She waved, she waved acknowledgement and pressed on through the crowds, following the EMTs. She found a cop. Do you know where Christine Ma is? What's your business? I'm supposed to ID someone, she lied. Christine called me down. The cop looked around, harried. You'd better come back. This thing's blowing up. Don't worry about it, she pushed past him. I'll find her. The cop didn't even hear. He was plunging through the crowds, shouting, Sir, sir, you can't touch evidence, as some old Texan howled and hugged a dirt-encrusted corpse. Lucy shoved her way further down the corridor and into the chill of the morgue. More bodies. Every open space. Lucy recognized the medical examiner and waved. Christine Ma was gesturing sharply to some EMTs. I don't have the room for them, she was saying. I don't know who the idiot was who authorized all these bodies to be moved. They should have been left at the dig. Well, we can't take them back, an EMT was saying. Not unless someone's paying us for the return trip. But I didn't authorize these. Like I said, we'll take them back if you pay. God damn it, who's in charge here? No one, Lucy realized. No one is in charge. Staring at the bodies and frantic emergency personnel, she felt as if the whole world was collapsing. It had been slow at first, but now it felt fast. Too fast to get free. Lucy was having a hard time wrapping her head around the number of bodies she was seeing. She'd written enough stories about populations on the move to know that refugees numbered in the hundreds of thousands, and yet, still, how had a single pair of predatory human traffickers managed to get their hands on so many people? For all the statistics of people displaced by tornadoes or hurricanes or drought or swamped coastlines, these piled corpses who had tried to buy their way north to places with water and jobs and hope struck Lucy more forcefully. Every time she thought she had hardened completely to human suffering, something like this hit her, and it was bigger and more overwhelming than the last time. Marooned in the chaos, she wrapped her arms around herself and suppressed a shiver. It's just going to keep getting worse. Christine was still shouting at the EMTs to take the bodies back, but they were walking away. It was as if high tide poured into the morgue and left bodies as driftwood, piled haphazardly on every table, stacked to the floors, stacked on the floors. Christ, she could practically write the copy off dictation. Timo was right. This was big. She could probably sell exclusives to Fox and CNN, Google New York Times, supplement it with hits on her personal feed and hash sign Phoenix down the tubes, plus a direct-to-EPUB on Kindle Post... If she played it right, she might even be able to sign a book deal. She couldn't help but add up all the potential income options. She could sell this story six different ways and still have more plays. Timo was snapping pictures of Christine's altercation, more fodder for his blood rags. He caught sight of Lucy and gave her a thumbs up. They say it's going to be a record! <laughs> of course it was going to be a record. Anything less wouldn't bring the rest of the journalists flooding back to Phoenix. Everyone knew the place was dying. But slow death didn't attract attention. A record mass murder, on the other hand? That got American bureau chiefs salivating and news teams on the next plane out. 
It could keep her and Timo eating for months. Timo snapped pictures. Lucy watched, impressed at how fluidly he shoved himself into the most broken and intimate moments of people's lives. One minute he was squatting with grieving Texas parents who'd sent their daughter north to a better life. Now he was squeezing into the heart of a struggle between more EMTs dumping bodies and Christine as she fought for some measure of control. Nobody minded Timo. He was so familiar, he was practically family. In and out, snapping pictures. The man was Mercury. By tonight, the photos he shot would be spinning across the internet and Anna would be on the phone begging Lucy to come north again, begging her to rethink the need to play voyeur in this increase, in, in, inside the increasing pull of this vortex. I worry, Anna had said on the phone. That's all. I just worry. This would make her worry more. This wasn't something that Lucy could just explain away as media sensationalization. It was too big. There were too many bodies. There was too much horror, even for Anna, secure and safe up in lush green Vancouver, to miss. This was true apocalypse. The world, after all the rules, had stopped existing. All right. All right. Um, so, so, yeah, so anyway, it's, it's a cheery book. Um, it's going to be a record. <laughs> um, uh, there's uh, one of the things that's sort of interesting about writing stories like this is that uh, a lot of times uh, people will and have accused me of sort of doing something they say is writing darkness for darkness's sake. Um, um, that essentially that I'm enjoying the fun of, of tearing something apart so that I can watch the human suffering and sort of wallow in it. Um, and and it's interesting because I mean that comes up a lot and it, and it, and I, I get the sort of the the complaint there in some ways which is that um, you know why can't you tell a positive story and in fact maybe we need more positive stories which I think is true if we if we're going to um, make a more positive future we probably need positive myths to live into templates that we can think about and sort of lean into and so that we can build the right kind of future instead of the stupid one where we make profit today and break our world tomorrow. Um, and so, you know, the, the honest answer is that essentially what I do is I'm writing my anxieties. Um, I look around at the world. I look at certain trend lines. I look at something like this news story about a developer trying to take away a rule about controlling groundwater pumping. And I'm like, hmm, if this goes on, what will the world look like? You know, I look at someone like Governor Rick Perry, who during the Texas drought went around trying to pray for rain. And you say, hmm, if this is what the world looks like, you know, and if it keeps going, what will, what will we get? Okay, we can just extrapolate outward and, outward and you start being really worried. Um, and that's where, you know, the, the, that's where my sort of, that's the, that's the heart of my writing is this sort of sense of anxiety when I see a trend line. And I think this doesn't seem to go in the right direction. Um, it doesn't seem like we're going in the direction of solving a problem or it seems like we're going exactly in the opposite direction of a solving a problem. Um, so the one there's, there's, um, and, and so there's, and so I understand kind of this complaint about like, you know, why do you write these dark stories? I think you know, in my mind, I think that they come from a legitimate place. I don't think I'm building some sort of like terrible world for people to wallow in and have fun in. Um, I, I, I do see stories like that and I judge them heavily. You know, I see that a lot in apocalypse literature where, you know, the world is torn to pieces, everything is horrible. And except for one plucky band of survivors that's chased by a motorcycle gang, um, like, 
I see that trope a lot and it, you know, it shows up in your nuclear apocalypse and your zombie apocalypse and your bio apocalypse. And it's all the same apocalypse. And you're like, I think this isn't actually about us falling apart. I think this is actually about the fun of shooting the bad guys. Um, and, and that's not where I am. Um, uh, and in fact, there's something weird about those, all those apocalypse stories, which is they seem to encourage a different kind of template, which is that the path to survival is essentially one where we all need to hunker down with our guns and our canned food. And, uh, and that's how you survive. You know, you go find your cabin in the woods and you hunker down there and you blast anybody who comes at you. Uh, um, and the weird thing is, is that you actually see people templating off that you see preppers and you're like oh this is interesting we build this kind of mythology in our fiction and stuff and then we have people who seem to model themselves after it um somewhat fetishistically and you think that's not kind of the model that you necessarily want to promote um and so i think i'm going to end on one last bit of story here um the last character i want to read from is um a character named maria and and she is a texas refugee um and she has uh, fled out of Texas and gotten as far as Phoenix and, um, and then bumped up against the state border control laws and she can't get out. Um, and she's been struggling to survive as a very much a second class citizen in, in Phoenix where Phoenix is already falling apart. And then all these Texans have showed up and nobody likes the Texans. Um, I don't know why. Like, <laughs> And, and it, one of the pleasures actually of writing this book was I actually got to create a whole religious cult called Mary Perry's so I could make fun of Rick Perry. Um, <laughs> but um, let's see if I can find this section, though. So in this section, this is fairly far on with Maria, and she's gone through a bunch of different schemes to try to survive. And, and they've gone horribly wrong for her. Um, and so at this point, she's kind of at the end of her rope. Um, and I'm going to try to skip past a couple of little spoiler bits, but um, we'll see how this goes. Um, Maria watched Toomey coming home from work, rattling down the street as the sun sank hot and red over the abandoned subdivision. She'd never been so glad to see anyone in all her life. She loved everything about Toomey in that moment. His bald head gleaming in the sun, the man's pupusa cart all hammered together with its red and white umbrella strapped across the top, his apron stripped off and folded neatly so that he was just a man in baggy jeans pushing his cart. Even the one bad rattling wheel sounded good to her. Toomey startled at the sight of her sitting on his front stoop, but he didn't act as if she didn't belong. He came up and settled beside her with a groan. Hey, little queen. His voice was soft, not pushing, already knowing that things had gone wrong for her. He offered her water from a, bottle of, uh, from a bottle with a scratched Coca-Cola label. His own water, she knew, filled at the pumps closer to town from the, Red Cross, uh, from the Red Cross pumps before he made the trek out to the middle of nowhere. Maria sipped carefully, trying not to be greedy, fighting need. She knew what he was seeing, another sad-ass girl trying to make herself look like a woman. Maria wiped the mouth of the bottle and handed it back. As he took it, she was aware of how big his hands were. Those hands had built houses, these houses all around them. He sipped the water from the bottle and offered it to her again. Go ahead, I got enough. She shook her head. Sarah's dead. She was surprised her voice didn't break. She felt torn to pieces inside, but her eyes were bone dry. It was like her body knew there was still too much pain ahead to waste tears now. Her body knew she needed to save her tears for the pain still to come. 
Toomey didn't look surprised at Maria's news. When she didn't say anything else, he said, Sarah's that girl you ran with, right? Yeah, the one with the skinny ass. You told me once she wasn't playing smart. Maria shrugged. Should have listened. Toomey was quiet for a long time. I'm sorry. Maria knew he was looking at her, and she knew that he could tell from the skimpy black dress and high heels that she'd been playing Sarah's game, too. She stared determinedly out at the dusty street, avoiding his gaze. She didn't want to see the judgments of the clothes or Sarah or how stupid she'd been. She didn't want to see someone judging Sarah. She hunched in on herself, feeling small and exposed in her party dress, sitting beside this big man with his tidily buttoned shirt. This man who somehow managed to keep everything about himself organized. He was like an island of calm and chaos. Even now, with everything fallen apart, he was more peaceful than anything she'd been next to in years. You were right, she repeated, pressing the issue. I shouldn't have gone with her. All Toomey said was, I'm sorry, again. Why are you sorry, Maria shot back. It's not like you put the bullet in her. She got her own dumbass shot. Toomey recoiled as if slapped. Maria didn't want to push him away, but she couldn't help it. It was as if she wanted him to react, to punish her, to call her out, to slap her down, to react in any way at all, instead of just sitting next to her. She glared at him. She screwed up her own self, right? Peddling her ass like that. She deserved it. Dumb piece of Texas tail, right? She deserved it for being so stupid. No, Toomey said gently. It wasn't her fault. And no, she didn't deserve it. She sold ass. Now she's dead. He looked away. He started to say something and then stopped. Started again and then paused. Finally, he just sighed and said, It wasn't always like this. Maria laughed bitterly. You sound like my dad, saying things that didn't used to be this way. It's going to get back to normal. Suddenly she was mad, enraged at Toomey and her father and everyone who talked about how their lives had been one way or another, but never talked about how it was now. It's always been like this, she said, and it's always going to be like this. Always. Suddenly she found that she could look the old man right in the eye and not care that she felt naked in Sarah's borrowed dress and that her feet hurt from the high heels and that she'd left her friend to die alone because she couldn't save her and, and that she was even a little bit glad that she hadn't because if Sarah hadn't died, then they would have hunted for her too and then she would have been dead too. It's like you can't see what's happening, she said to Toomey. You talk about how it was before, but I don't know how that is. Whatever you had, I don't got it. I wasn't... Toomey started, but Maria raised her voice and rolled right over him. Everyone I know is dead. My mom, my dad, now Sarah, and, and... She hiccuped a sob. I'm so tired. And she could barely get the words out. The grief was there, finally, all of it, welling up and overflowing. She sobbed for her losses. Sarah, her family, her perfect house in Texas, bunk beds, school, wondering whether Jill Amos was her friend or not, anticipating eighth grade prom, stupid small things, and all of it was gone. She was all that was left. Maria Villarosa, the last bit of anything that she could remember. One person sitting in the middle of a ruined city beside some old black guy who just looked at her sadly and who was the closest thing she had to a friend or family in the whole world. Toomey's arm encircled her. At his touch, Maria sobbed harder, unbearably relieved to have him hold her. Eventually, her crying slowed and then stopped. She leaned against his chest, feeling exhausted and empty. I just wanted to earn some money, she whispered. I lost money, Sarah's money, so I owed her. 
Hush, Toomey said. None of it's on you. And that started her crying again. Eventually, finally, her tears dried for real. Grief as hard and charred as stone. She could feel it there. It wasn't gone, but seemed buried instead, under her ribs, aching, but finished. Maria leaned against, let herself lean against Toomey, and for a long time they said nothing. The sun sank over the hollowed houses that he'd built with his big hands and his optimism. Maria was surprised that she felt safe and wondered at that feeling and why she had it and if it could last, and then decided there was no point questioning. A dog-like form slipped across the empty street, a coyote disappearing down an alley, running easily, its legs a fast-trot blur, tan and gray, lithe and purposeful, speeding through thickening dusk. Toomey shifted. The den's over there, he pointed further down the street. Are there a lot of them, Maria asked? At least four or five. He was quiet for a while. I was going to sell that place for $359,000. Now I'm trying to figure out if I can charge a bunch of wild animals some rent. (laughs) It wasn't a good joke, but Maria laughed anyway. She looked up at him. I was... She started to ask, but, but found she couldn't say the words. She looked away, not wanting to see his eyes. I was wondering if you'd... I was wondering if I could stay with you, she blurted. She shut up, then plunged on. I've got cash I could give you. I can work. I can help. I'll, I'll, I can do anything, she reached for him. I can do... And in her mind, she thought, I, I can do all the things that Sarah was telling me I should have done to you. I'll... Toomey pushed her away. Don't... We already been over that. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have... Don't think I'm not flattered. He was shaking his head. If I was a younger man or a little less principled, then sure, yes, in a flat second. He laughed uncomfortably. But no. I'll go, Maria said, feeling stupid. Why would you do that? You don't want me, she said. I get it. Hell, girl, of course I want you. He reached over and pulled her into a hug. Of course I want you, but not like that. I want you to have everything you deserve. I want you to have a future and a life. I want you to get out. Maria laughed hollowly. You sound like my dad. There's no way out. The vet's going to come for me and for Sarah's money, and when he gets hold of me, he's going to feed me to his hyenas. Well, we'll see about that. I know some people who might be able to help you get out, get across the border. Maria dug in her purse. I don't have money for that. She dug in, dug in her purse, hunting. This is all I got. I would have had more, but for some reason, Toomey looked even sadder. I should have taken you in as soon as your father died. Why? The idea that anyone at all had been looking out for her made her chest feel tight again. I kept thinking I should help you, he said. Saw you on the street, and I kept thinking I would. But I was afraid, so I kept putting it off. I didn't want to make promises I couldn't keep. I didn't want to fail you. I thought you had too many people make you promises and then fail you. Maria was surprised to see that Toomey's eyes were wet. He gripped her hands, enfolding them, and the cash they held. We're going to get you out of here, he said fiercely. You're not going to die down here, and for damn sure you're not going to live here. Not if anything. I've got anything to say about it. He stood up. Now come inside, and we'll get you set up. We'll figure out a plan. We'll take our time, and we'll think things through, and it'll be a real plan, not a fantasy. We'll find someone to get you across the river. She stared at him, confused. It was as if she'd cast witchcraft on him, a spell to make him do crazy things. Nothing about him made sense. Why did he suddenly want to help? Why are you so nice? It doesn't make sense. I'm not your woman. I'm not your people. He looked at her. We're all each other's people. I just couldn't see it. We're just, we're all each other's people. 
Just like we're all our brother's keepers. We forget it sometimes. When everything's going to pieces, people can forget. But in the end, we're all in it together. You are my people, Maria. No question in my mind. All right, and I think that's the end for me in terms of things that I wanted to talk about. I just wanted to end on that note of like that it does seem like human beings do a lot better when we work together. Um, so um, anyway, uh, if you guys have questions, I'd be happy to answer any questions you have. Um, I can, if you want questions about my writing, about writing in general, anything, um, happy to answer them. So. Uh, where did the title come from? The Water Knife. Where did the title come from? Uh, I uh, I was trying to come up with originally. I was trying to make. I wanted to make this a thriller story, and um, and I liked um, and I wanted to have these sort of double O sevens of water and stuff. And so when I was thinking about you know how we handle water and water rights and stuff like that, the idea of cutting water and cutting off other people's water was really strong in my mind. Um, uh, I grew up on a on a farm, and we have fairly junior water rights, and so there's times when your water gets cut off because someone with senior rights wants all the water and they get it, and in a drought year they get it all. Um, and so that idea of cutting water was really strong in my mind, and so that's where the water knife came from then, and that Las Vegas would employ water knives. Um, so, yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Okay. Um, so Shipbreaker, um, when I was writing it, was I writing that for a young adult audience specifically? Was I, right. It is billed that way. And it was, yes, I, and I was thinking about it specifically that I was trying to write for young adults. Um, sorry. Um, yeah, I, um, I actually wrote, uh, two novels simultaneously. I was writing The Wind-Up Girl and I was writing Shipbreaker at the same time. And, um, and to me, Shipbreaker actually was my light and pleasant adventure story, um, in comparison to The Wind-Up Girl, which was kind of getting me down. Um, and, and, it, you know, it's, yeah, anyway, I, you, you live in these worlds and you break them enough and then you're like, wow, I really do have a lot of anxieties. Um, um, but yeah, with Shipbreaker, uh, I, I specifically wanted to tell an adventure story, um, and I was thinking a lot in the mode of, uh, I grew up reading uh, stories by Robert Heinlein, uh, his juvenile fiction, things like uh, Starman Jones, Citizen of the Galaxy, um, and those were the books that got me reading. And my wife is a school teacher, and I was really interested to see that certain kids of hers were not reading. Um, and you know, my solution for that was like, well, let them read science fiction. That's how I, you know, found out that I liked reading. Um, and then I went back to those old, uh, stories and they felt very dated. Um, and so I wanted to write kind of an updated version of those stories, something that felt relevant to this day and age. Um, but yeah, was specifically intended for teenagers to read and enjoy. Um, do I think that's the primary audience? Yes, I absolutely do. Um, and the way I know is actually when I um, won the Michael Prince Award, it didn't, didn't um, no uh, buyer. <laughs> basically, basically, when I won the Hugo Award for The Wind-Up Girl, it didn't affect any sales for Shipbreaker. And when I won the Michael Prince Award and got the National Book Award, it, did know if, it didn't affect any sales for Wind-Up Girl. Um, these are totally separated careers um, with totally separated audiences. There's a very small number of people who will cross over. Um, one of the things is I actually think about 
Shipbreaker as being it's very much an all ages book. Um, you know, nobody should ha- feel like, and even you know, something like Zombie Baseball Beatdown, my middle grade uh, novel, um, which is aimed at at you know children, you know, for the like the third grade to like sixth grade kind of age range. Um, none of these books should like make anybody ever feel like their intelligence is insulted. Um, you you are specifically thinking about a certain reader as your ideal reader, the person you're giving the gift of story to. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that like any more than when you watch a Disney movie that you necessarily will feel insulted when you watch Aladdin and you get to watch the genie doing all of his hijinks or whatever. Um, I do think that there's uh, bigger umbrellas that like many people can still enjoy a story inside of. Um, so I hope that lots of people can read it, but it, who's it intended as a gift for? Absolutely. Shipbreaker was for these young teens. So you did, you liked them both. Awesome. You like Shipbreaker better. Yeah. I, it's an adventure story. Um, yeah, I think Shipbreaker is really enjoyable as an adventure story. And, and I kind of, sometimes I feel a little bit hurt, actually, that more adults aren't willing to read across into this YA genre. Um, because I do feel like there are actually some really interesting things that happen inside of that genre. Um, one of the best uh, dystopian novels I've ever read is by M.T. Anderson. It's called Feed. Um, and it's intended for a teen audience. But holy cow, that thing is smart. Like, it's just really good. Um, so, yeah, I, I used to sort of wish that, like, people would pick up, you know, Shipbreaker or the Drowned Cities and enjoy those as much as they as the, much as they enjoyed the Wine Up Girl. But And some people who are more, you know, open readers do, but it just depends. Yeah. Yeah. Do you spend more time writing or revising? Do I spend more time writing or revising? Um, I actually think of these – I don't think of these things as being entirely separated objects. Um, revising is writing. Um, it's all part of a process. Um, you're sort of hunting for the right words in the right way. Um, and so um, – a lot of times there's a period where you draft something out. For me, there's a bunch of writing that I'll do where I'm kind of picking, putting together the story in my own mind, um, where I'm trying to build out the world, where I'm trying to understand it. And I'll oftentimes spin in around the first 30,000 words of a book trying to figure it out. Um, and then and, – and that that will often be like I write 30,000 words, throw it all away. Write 30,000 words, throw it away. So is that writing or revising? You know, write 30,000 words again, throw it away. But each time I'm gathering little pieces. And then finally, like for whatever reason, the book seems to make sense and I believe in it. And then I can go to the end. Um, but then there's also that process of sort of looking at it and sort of saying, does this thing – actually accomplish what I, you know, imagine it does in my mind. And so then there's a process of layering where you're going to go back through and you're going to say, oh, this character doesn't quite work in the way that I want them to, or I'm noticing this relationship needs tightening up, or there's, um, in some cases, I want this world to feel more lived in. And for some reason it doesn't, it feels a little blank. Um, sometimes you call that the white room syndrome. It's like, it's not detailed enough yet. And you start thinking like, well, maybe I can thread some religion in. Well, maybe I can thread clear sacks in. Maybe I can thread whatever that next thing is that's going to make the whole world feel more lived in and and it's just process of of looping and sort of revising all the time sort of and then finally you have this thing that you say largely the the conclusion i come to is this is proof of concept um if somebody hates this book they will hate it for the right reasons um and like this is the thing i think i was trying to make you know and you know that's it's it's uh it seems to it seems to sort of occupy the space that it held in my mind, and now it seems to be outside of me. Um, but yeah, the writing versus revising thing is uh, because of the way I loop through it and sort of thread through and have to brainstorm a lot. Um, I don't think of those as being highly separated. Um, other questions? Yeah. I'm a little surprised to hear about the uh, criticism of the, the darkness of your writing. I, 
impact on the water knife, especially to be less a warning and, and perhaps more prescient. That's just the world that I, the way I look at my world. As a Colorado, you probably have followed some or all of the conversation around water that the state has had in the last 24 months. Uh, how's that fit into your real world and then the world of the water knife? Okay, so this is a question about Colorado, Colorado water politics, and then how that connects to my world uh, when I'm building something like the water knife. Um, okay, um, so there are some things that were actually specifically threaded in, and they were partly because, like, I went to a, a drought conference a couple of years ago. In 2012, I went to a drought conference here in Colorado, and it was really, really interesting because um, while I was there, we were having this terrible drought. It was amazing to sort of hear all of these different impacts that were happening. And so you're hearing about ag impacts, you're hearing about tourism impacts, you're seeing um, sort of environment ecosystem impacts like forest fires or mudslides, all these other things that were happening. Um, and uh, and then you were also seeing like these weird infrastructure management impacts where, you know, the things like uh, the sewage treatment plants couldn't release effluent into the rivers because rivers were too low. And so they needed to hold more effluent because they need to have a certain uh, mix of fresh water to mix with their effluent in order to not basically kill the rivers um, with with uh, with their release. And uh, so the sewage treatment plants couldn't release uh, effluent at certain times and were having to hold more than they sh were sort of built to. And you're seeing all these kind of weird impacts. But the thing that was really amazing is all these people are talking about these impacts of drought and, and climate change was not mentioned a single time. Um, and it was fascinating. I mean, Governor Hickenlooper was there and and he, the closest he came to it is like, well, we don't really want it. We don't really need to talk about like what, you know, where causes come from or anything like that. But we think that maybe there's going to be dry, it's going to be drier in the future. <laughs> <laughs> that was about as close as you know they got to that. Um, but there was also a moment when I actually talked to somebody from uh, Denver Water who was there, and uh, and the question I asked him actually was specifically one about planning, which was really interesting to me. Which was, you know, here we are in this terrible drought in 2012. How many droughts like this drought can we survive in a row? And uh, and he sort of you know kicked it around in his head for a little while. And it was like, well, we could probably last about five years. Um, if it's, you know, this bad, we could probably stretch it out. He's like, a lot of things would be really devastated. Like the trees would all be dead in Denver. Um, but we could probably still be hanging on, you know, we wouldn't be used having a commercial water use. We'd have all sorts of rationing and stuff like that, but like, we'd probably still be hanging on. Okay. Like hanging on. Um, uh, and, I, and then I asked him like, well, what are the chances of that happening? Um, and and he looked at me very seriously and said, "Well, it's never happened before." <laughs> and and to me, you know, it's one of those moments where it's like, okay, we we recognize that climate change is this massive game changer. Like whatever our history is, it is not our future. Um, and it was really really interesting to see this sort of bureaucratic um, sort of narrative tunnel that said, "Well, in the past it wasn't like this, so we aren't planning for it." And these are the people who are in charge of thinking about these questions. Um, and so things like that very much informed the way that I thought about the water knife. Um, you know, more recently, I'm fascinated by the fact that we're finally getting around to sort of talking about, hey, maybe we could have some rain barrels and maybe that we could make that legal. Uh, gee, you know. Um, but what you still see is basically, overall, it looks like all of our water policies are, are set up around an idea that like, well, whoever got it first gets theirs and to hell with the rest of you. And I guarantee that's not the way that's, that system is not going to hold into the future. But we seem really confused about it still. Um, and it's fascinating how long it took to do something as simple as rain barrels. So um, that doesn't sort of bode well in my mind. So, yeah. Other questions? Yeah. I find that your writing is very character-rich in a way 
character development in your process, and if, if that relates to your attempts at mythmaking? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so this is a question about uh, characters um, and character development, and thank you. Uh, you find my characters rich um, and interesting, and I'm glad. Um, I actually, I, I fall in love with all my characters, and, and um, I have a huge amount of empathy for them, and I live inside their skins, and then you sort of like are like, does anybody else believe in this? I hope they do. Um, but yeah, um, what I found is that there is a there is a sort of a process that I go through as, as I'm building the world, um, and as I'm starting to live inside of the character's skin, and this goes back to the question of writing and revising a lot for me too, where I will spend a lot of time with characters figuring out what they're like. Um, you know, the entry points in this story for Maria and for Lucy and for, um, and for Angel are not where I originally started at all with them. I, you know, I think this opening scene with Angel is like, was originally in at the in front of a courthouse at the Southern Nevada Water Authority, and he was kicking a desiccated dog across the um, across the concrete. And you know, it's like, no, I'm not going to do any of that. But I got this little segment of conversation between him and Braxton that I'm going to use, and you know, you find little bits or whatever, and and you slowly build out the character. And so there's there's huge amounts of backstory where. You know, I thought about, you know, how did Angel end up here? You know, what is his life like? And is he has a Cypress apartment? How sweet and lovely is his life? And, you know, what is he, what's it like when he clicks on the news and watches TV and sort of has his own editorializing, being the water knife, knowing the story behind the story on different, you know, news events and stuff? What is it like for him to observe the news and what is he thinking about? Or, you know, those kinds of things. Um, in the same way with Maria, uh, Maria started out, I think her first scene originally in my mind was that, I knew that she was doing something with water and I could sort of see her pulling a red wagon full of water bottles. Um, but like why and what? And so I had to work that out. And then there was a whole other scene where she um, is bargaining with somebody over the price that she's going to have to pay them, you know, is sort of uh, a rent on the water while she, you know, sort of the, the black market uh, control people who became the vet later on. But like a lot of those are really slow processes where, they go, you know, these characters are doing these really dumb activities, but you get like one or two details and slowly they become rich enough and real enough that, that I start to believe in them. And then there's some moment when they just pop to me and, and that's, and it's, it's uh, a little frustrating because it, it's, it, you want it to be, a um, you want it to be a formula that you know, like, oh, if I do X, Y, and Z, then I'll have a real character. And it never is that way. Um, a lot, it's always this process of sort of like chewing on them for a really long time. And then finally, like, it's like, wait, wait, then now they're real. Right? How, now I know exactly what they'll say in this circumstance. Now I know exactly what they'll do in this circumstance. Um, and that's when I can start moving them forward. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of it's just living inside of their skin. And then that also gives you this huge opportunity to get to know the world. Um, and, you know, what is their problem? And so... Uh, you know, what is it like to sit around in the pumps and, you know, watch the water, you know, price and stuff like that. And then finally it becomes, yeah, real. Um, but it is a little bit mysterious, so it's a little frustrating that way. Um, yeah, other questions? Uh, yeah, in the back. Right. Okay, so this is a question about yeah sequels, um, and yeah with the with Shipbreaker, uh, John Cities is a sequel, but it's also you know the, the characters mostly other than Tool 
no other characters are sort of carried through. And so these are standalone stories. And I've found that actually I do best when I'm working on standalone stories. Um, so then the question of would I do a sequel to The Water Knife? Um, I, I would consider possibly doing something in that world. And actually what the next uh, adult novel that I'm thinking about writing may may still be set in this same world, but possibly on the East Coast. Um, and because I'm interested in, you know, as more news sort of bubbles up about um, just exactly how much sea level rise we're anticipating and how quickly um, there's some things that I think would be fun to talk about sort of populated areas on coastal regions and stuff in fast transitions. Um and so, and so that those that might actually share essentially the same milieu, if um, even though even though maybe none of the characters are the same. So yeah. Um, other questions? I think somebody was over here. Oh, what am I going to work on in the future? Um, so the thing that I'm working on immediately is I'm working on the next book in the Shipbreaker series, actually, um, which is going to be all about Tool. Um, it's all about Tool being hunted by his owners um, or his free- previous owners. Um, and that's very much a straight-up adventure story, um, uh, fairly closely connected to Drowned Cities. Um, at least, you know, he starts up sort of close to when the drowned cities ends. Um, but, uh, and then after that, the next one, the next adult book, really the thing I'm interested in is I'm really interested in the language that we use to talk about ourselves as human beings. And, and when we're talking about things like sustainability or when we're talking about things like being a smart species, um, I sometimes feel like we don't quite have the right language tools. And it's much like that metaphor of water wars. And it's like, this might not be the right metaphor to talk about what kinds of conflicts we have around drought and water. Um, that, you know, if you have the wrong metaphor, it gives you the wrong angle on the problem kind of. Um, and I think that there's some, we're, we're sort of not understanding who we are as a species anymore. Um, I feel like we as human beings have changed, uh, massively. We are no longer those tribal creatures that, you know, lived on the, the, the savannas and were hunter gatherers. Um, and yet, we still occupy, we still perceive ourselves as occupying that kind of a meat space um, sort of humanity. And the reality is, is that we are global creatures, you know, like I have this cell phone and that means that basically I'm connected to lithium mines in Peru. I'm connected to manufacturing in China, wherever this thing goes then to get recycled and die, you know, I'm connected to all those spots. So like, and you know, it's the same thing when I pick up an apple at the grocery store, it comes from New Zealand or whatever. And so it's like this thing where your hands are all over the planet, your mouth is all over the planet, you know, like, like I might perceive myself as being in a single space the same way I was, you know, when I was, you know, barely, you know, a, uh, a homo sapiens, but, um, but it's not true anymore. Now I'm everywhere. Um, and similarly, like, uh, you see this sort of thing where everything that I do will echo through time in ways that we never have before. So <clears throat> if I get on a plane and fly to Australia, that decision will echo for my son and echo into my son's life. <clears throat> and so, you know, we are no longer sort of individual human beings in specific spaces occupying a specific time where we exist and then we snuff and we exist and we snuff like that. We are, we echo and move in ways that we never do before. We don't really have a language for that. Like, what does it mean to be an object like that? Um, and then what does it mean to operate at scale? Um, you know, we've got 7 billion people on the planet. We're going to go to 9 billion. What does it mean when my individual decision doesn't really feel very impactful, but collectively, you know, I am massive, Um, and I feel like if, you know, I want to write, and this is, I always start with a really high level, you know, concept kind of, um, 
that, uh, you know, I want to write a story about like language and how we understand ourselves and how am I going to turn that into a thriller or some kind of exciting story? I have no idea, but I want to work with language and, and the metaphors that we use to describe our humanity. So, um, let's see, I think, I think we got a little bit, yeah, we got time for maybe one more question too. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, on the wind up girl. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Um, so this is a question about the wind-up girl and especially about the, the many cultures that are there and especially that sort of hard entry where you're entering into the story. Not only are you reading a science fictional book about a strange science fictional future, but you're also entering into another culture um, with unfamiliar language and things like that. Um, uh, and how is that received by my publisher and you know what was I kind of thinking about? Is that kind of the – okay. Um, so – with the language specifically, yeah, I wanted to have that language in there. And yeah, I actually did kind of want you to bounce off a little bit um, because I want the reader to feel somewhat alienated. Like it's not automatic that we enter into another cultural space and understand everything that's going on inside of it. And so there are certain times when I want, you know, any in any plot sense, you will never be cut out from the story. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have access to every layer of a culture. Um, and in that story, I wanted spots to, for it to feel very alienated. It's like, oh, something's going on here. I got to kind of hang on and sort of like try to figure it out by context. And maybe I can, maybe I can't. Um, uh, and that's that was an effect that I was definitely shooting for. Um, the uh, as far as the as far as my publisher, they were actually totally down with the book. Though the the real pushback actually happened earlier when every single major New York publisher rejected that book. That was the pushback. So. <laughs> I guess you could say there was pushback, actually. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I was rejected everywhere in New York. There was no major publisher that would take me. Um, and I ended up uh, being – Wind Up Girl was published by a small press in San Francisco. Uh, two really crazy, passionate guys in a house basically said, we like this book. We want to print it. And it was like, okay, well, nobody else wants it. Okay, sure. And uh, and none of us expected it to take off the way it did. We None of us thought that, like, you know, it would be they, – they were just thinking, well, maybe we won't lose our shirts printing this thing. And uh, and so, in fact, when it started to sell really well and started to get this huge momentum behind it, um, there was this really strange moment where um, I, as a really obsessive author, had been checking my Amazon you know, sales and stuff like that, which is just a sickness. Um, and uh, anyway, and, and I saw that the book was out of stock, and so I like call them up, like these two dudes, right? Normally you don't have like that kind of access to your publisher, but like I know the two dudes. I'm like, Jeremy, like, hey, what's going on? I noticed that my book is out of stock. Does that mean like we sold them all? And he was like, no, <laughs> this is not what means, you silly little author. Like, what this means is that, like, we sent out all the books we had, and in a couple weeks, all of them are going to get returned to us, and then we're going to send some more over to Amazon when that happens, and then those will get written, more will get returned, because nobody's buying your book anywhere in any of these bookstores, and eventually we'll kind of, sh- we'll keep moving them over to Amazon, and it'll just keep going like this. He's like, if you are lucky, we might sell the whole print run within the next year, if you're, if you're desperately lucky. So just go back to bed, author, and, and stop looking at Amazon. And, uh, 
And, uh, and then like two weeks later, he calls me up and he's like, huh, it looks like you actually sold out. <laughs> looks like, we, ha- we can't find any books anywhere. We're going back to reprint. And, uh, and then like two weeks after that, he was like, huh, we seem to sold out again. We're going back for another reprint. And we did that like four or five times for the hardback. Um, and then when, it, when we went into paperback, then it just really went crazy. But, um, and yeah, and then it got just more and more momentum behind it. And it was, but it was a puzzle to all of us. And so that was sort of a, a strange thing. But yes, the initial stages of selling that book was it's complicated. It's a dark science fiction novel. Uh, we don't know what the market is. We don't know how to market it. And there was a lot of pushback that way. So, yeah. Quick question, film. Quick question, film. Um, uh, right now... Um, it, I, it, right now, there's an option on, on uh, Waterknife. There's an option, and there's also an option on Shipbreaker and the Drowned Cities. But you, you can't really guess. You, you never know. Um, so let's see. All right. I think, I think we're great. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for coming. And I will be up here happy to sign books and stuff. Um, after I finish that, I'm happy to chat. If I, I didn't manage to answer a question of yours, I'm happy to chat afterwards, too. So, all right. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.